Hello and welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Mala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and honestly, I see him on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, Fox Business. He's everywhere. Uh, he's, uh, in my humble opinion, one of the top futures to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. Here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar. As you know, one of the top followers, top people to follow if you're following him on Twitter for CMOs, CIOs, CEOs, and uplifting advice. Uh, author himself, and of course, on major radio, major TV outlets, and of course, uh, talking about what's happening, what's hot, what trends, and of course, a keynote speaker. But it's not about us. It's really about what's going on in the world, and we've got one of the hottest topics we can be talking about uh, with our next guest. So who do we have, Vala? It's our pleasure for, uh, for our first guest to have Howard Stephen Friedman, data scientist, health economist, writer, and artist um, on Disrupt TV. Howard teaches at Columbia University. Uh, Howard earned a master's uh, degree in statistics and PhD in biomedical engineering from John Hopkins University. He has led teams of data scientists, statisticians, analysts, programmers, and has formed companies that provide consulting services in the area of designing, developing, and modeling data. He has authored several books uh, and, and co-authored about 100 scientific articles and book chapters in areas of data science, statistics, health economics, and politics. Howard's author of Measure of a Nation, which was the best book of 2012 in an interview published in the New York Times. His latest book is called Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life, which is going to be the topic of our show. Please follow Howard on Twitter at Howard S. Friedman, H-O-W-A-R-D-S-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. Welcome, Howard, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thank you so much, and what a fantastic introduction. Can we just end now on a high note? <laughs> Good, this has been great having you, Howard, and you can follow Howard on this channel. Though. Hey, <laughs> look, you... You were prescient in writing this book. I mean, the question you always get is, why did you write the book now? And as an author, you know, the three of us have been authors, right? We know you wrote this a year ago, right? The concept was happening a year ago to get this published, to get this out the door, finally launched. I mean, what inspired you to write this? Because it has never been more relevant than today. Yeah, well, I mean, books take a long time. So I started writing this many, many years ago. Um, you know, for me, I just kept seeing this concept of how human life is valued coming up in all different areas of my work. And, and I was first really touched by the September 11th Victims Compensation Fund. Um, a lot of people may not be aware of this, but after September 11th, there was a Victims Compensation Fund. Government money was set aside and then payments were made. And the families of some victims were paid $250,000. Others paid over $7 million. And this was controversial. Why were some lives worth 30 times more than others? So that really touched me personally. I'm a, I'm a native New Yorker. I was living in D.C. at the time. And to see these price tags on human lives. So that's that piqued my interest. And then, you know, per that introduction, I do a lot of work in health economics, looking at how human life is valued from a health point of view. And I've been in business for many, many years. And so I understand how businesses do cost-benefit analysis that weigh the value of human life versus the costs of safety. So I've, I've seen it from many angles, and I felt like the public wasn't aware of how pervasive this is and, and the risks involved. So I wanted to tell a story that could connect with people and make them aware. Yeah, you say that you didn't start writing this book to provide answers on how human life can or should be valued. Your goal was to shed light on the opaque and unfair ways that price tags are placed on our lives. So why is it important that, that we understand this? And you have unbelievable use cases, you know, from, from traffic accidents to the 9-11 fund in terms of the ambiguity and, and potentially unfair way that we place value on life. Yeah, and work at the United Nations as well. So, 
Well, there's a single principle that I try to emphasize. The single principle is that lives that are less valued are less protected and lives that are more valued are more protected. And, you know, we can go into statistics, but single cases are important. And I think about the Cheryl Thurston case Uh, with Cheryl Thurston. This was a woman in New York. She was in a care facility. She needed to be taken care of at all times when bathing. And they were negligent. They left her alone. She slipped into a coma. She died within 24 hours. Her sister sues the care facility. And in the end, the judge finds the care facility negligent, causing her death. But the judgment is for zero dollars. Why zero dollars? As the judge said, her sister was not earning a salary. She was costing money. She herself uh, never suffered pain. She never woke up. And when the judge issued this proclamation, she said, had Cheryl Thurston been chattel, like a, a chicken or a cow, then payment could have been made. And this is a tragic consequence when lives are simply not valued. Now, take this a little further in time. What message does this send to every single care facility in New York State? It says, follow the minimum levels of the law, but in case there's a negligent uh, situation and someone dies, you may not have to pay anything. Now, take us all the way to 2020. And you know, I love your introduction. No, I, I did not anticipate a global pandemic right around the book release. Uh, I, uh, but the timing is critical because people are seeing human life being valued all the time, day to day. And in New York State in particular, there is um, legislation that was passed just recently that protects care facilities so that for the thousands of deaths that have occurred during this COVID pandemic in New York, in nursing homes and care facilities, they're not negligent. They're, they're not responsible for any payments to the families of those who died. So you know, this goes back to a point. This goes back to a point you were talking mm-hmm. about. Choosing the health metric is also very important uh, in the book. And let's talk about the different types of health metrics and, and what they could mean in terms of the outcomes that people are looking at in terms of the value of the life or the payments or you know, what the compensation is for an injury. It's a fantastic point because, you know, we we presume that we're all kind of operating on the same set of logic and numbers, but we aren't. Think about it. You have a health system. Every health system has limited resources. They have to figure out where are they going to spend those limited resources. And you have a choice. Maybe you want to optimize the dollar spent per life saved, right? The human lives. And that, that seems reasonable. But another person could say, well, maybe I'm trying to optimize the dollar spent per life year saved. After all, I want to maximize the number of life years in the future. A third might say, well, what about the dollar spent per quality adjusted life year? Now, these aren't theoretical concepts. Economists use this all the time as part of their daily practice. So in the United Kingdom, this is a a standard metric to look at is what is the incremental cost per quality adjusted life year? Why does this matter? Well, very simple. If you're talking about lives versus life years, well, life years favors putting more money, more time, more investment in younger people. When you start adding in this adjusted factor, this quality adjusted life year, suddenly you start more putting in money, effort to save younger people who are healthier to the detriment of people who may not have full capability to walk, for example, or other measures in this quality adjustment. So all lives suddenly are not valued equally. And it's worth contrasting that with our regulatory system, which has a very different principle. Sure, sure. Going back to the the 9-11 compensation fund in your book, you talked about a variance that went from $250,000 to 7 million. And then you compare that to the Boston Marathon by contracts where all of the families were rewarded or paid the same amount regardless of wages or dependents. And the same person, Kenneth Feinberg, oversaw both uh, uh, distribution uh, algorithm and logic. So what was the difference uh, between the 9-11 fund versus the Boston Marathon? There's a few differences. The first one is the September 11th fund, that was public money. It wasn't private money. And he had a constraint. He was told that he had to take economic considerations into account. Basically, he had to simulate at least a little bit of what happens in a civil court. What that meant was he had to think a little bit about salaries um, because that's how civil courts work. But he controlled it. He said, no matter who you are, there's a minimum amount. There was going to be no Cheryl Thurston situation where the payment was zero. He also capped the top. He said, even if you're earning millions, and some of the victims probably were, he's not going to assume that in his calculation. He capped it. 
Had he not capped it, the range would have been much, much further. Mm. But he had that constraint. The Boston Marathon was different. That was a private fund, private money, no constraints. And what's interesting is just about two years after he had finished it, administering the Boston Marathon, uh, sorry, the September 11th fund, so back in around 2004, he stated that a better system would have been to pay the families of the victims the same. According mm -hmm. to him, it would have been less controversial and that it would be more accepted by the public and easier to administer. No fancy calculation, right. the same amount. Right. So fast forward to the Boston Marathon bombing, he has control. No one's telling him what he has to do. They say, we trust you. You know what you're doing. Give us the fairest thing you can imagine. And he's stuck to amazing. his principles. Well, it's it, it to me, amazing. I mean, it's, it is amazing because rarely do we get the chance in life to <laughs> correct an error. And he stated that he didn't think he did the job right. And he got the chance to correct it, and he lived by his word. And so that's why, come time for the Boston Marathon, he lived by his word. Families of all victims were paid the same, regardless of age, income, or any other aspect that could have influenced the payments. And do you think that sets the standards moving forward? I really hope so. And, you know, I, I, I don't have a perfect answer. And, and you framed it correctly. You know, I, I, my editor was so, so frustrated with me because they were like, seriously. <laughs> How about give us your answers? <laughs> give me a bullet point. Just give me, some, give me an answer. Not 250 pages. One little tweet. I didn't have one because there isn't one. But I say start with the idea of valuing all lives equally. You might have to adjust around it, right? You know, the the person who's committed multiple murders probably shouldn't be equated with a Nobel Prize winner, right? We don't want to do that. But at the same time, if you start, you'll prevent a lot of the injustices that happen when you drive it off of income. And like I said, the regulatory system operates under that principle, which is a nice framing for us to think about. Sorry, quick follow-up. Mm -hmm. How much do your students influence your thinking? Do they push back? Do they are they as as bold and courageous as I remember when I was in school? <laughs> uh, do they finish? Do I finish every lecture with them standing ovation? They say, "Wow, professor, every <laughs> single thing you said was a hundred percent right." And I can, no, of course not. I learned so much because they they challenge me, yeah. and the reality is. I my thinking evolves over time, right? As I learn from them. So it's it's a dialogue, it's an education. And to your point, if folks look at my acknowledgement section of my book, about half the people I acknowledge are actually former students who I've learned from as part of our engagement. So yeah, uh, you know, professors they they get paid to learn, and uh, the students are paying a lot to teach those professors. <laughs> no, it, it's great. You know, and you bring up one other point that I thought was pretty interesting about how life insurance works, right? I mean, I think you said it's the only time where you value your own life, but then other people are valuing it in a different way on the back end. And I think people should really understand how that works, right? Because you know, you go you buy a policy, you think, you know, it's a million, five million, whatever, 100,000, whatever your life insurance policy is. I mean, there's a lot going on in the back end that strangely is not regulated. Well, Ray, you hit a couple of great points on that. The first one is all of these calculations we've talked about so far, that's someone else putting a price tag on your life. Whether it's a company, whether it's the civil courts, whether it's regulatory agencies, someone else is doing it. In life insurance, you get to figure out how much coverage you want. And there's ways to do that. You could specifically look at uh, what is the replacement need of your family? How much money do they need in order to have the life that they would want if you're not around? You could look at what is the lost income. You can look at different metrics. Uh, in the real world, most people don't do a lot of fancy calculations with Excel spreadsheets to figure out their coverage. What they do is they look at affordability. They say, what can I pay and what gives me what seems like a good number. And if that good number is half a million or a million, that's that's probably where they're going to go. But in the background, you have statisticians, actuaries doing the analytics, trying to figure out what is the probability of this person's mortality as a function of age and basically doing risk splitting because that's their whole business is risk splitting. Um, in the process of um, writing the book, can you tell us, uh, if you could correct one misunderstanding about uh, price of life and how life is valued, uh, what would it be? Um, it's going to sound like I'm going to shoot myself right in the foot, but it's <laughs> the experts need to get feedback. And, and this comes up all the time in my book. Um, you have people who have a passionate interest of focus, but 
but the public has to be engaged and understand. And I'll give you an example. So during the Bush 43 administration, hmm. the Environmental Protection Agency uh, had tested the waters on the idea of there being two price tags, a lower one for senior citizens and a higher value of human life for those who were younger. And the public became aware of this. They hated it. They termed it a senior death discount. They felt that it was completely unfair to basically value older people's lives less. They pushed back on it, and the Environmental Protection Agency then backed off. To this day now, they value all lives the same, old or young, rich or poor, regardless of where you live, regardless of any other factor. And that's critical. Had the public not gotten engaged, you wouldn't have seen that change. And so public awareness understanding and then taking action when you see an injustice is important because if you simply leave these things out to technocrats, to people who are doing calculations in a back office and don't get engaged, you're putting your own life at risk because those values mean something. It's not a theoretical exercise. This is what impacts how much safety is put into, whether it's the water, the air we breathe, or any other factor. So they, they feel like esoteric calculations, but they impact your day-to-day -day safety. Yeah, makes sense. Wow. Makes sense. You know, this is very interesting how you bring all this together. Um, now, how does this tie back to cost-benefit analyses for big, big businesses, right? Like, what do they think about in terms of, you know, if you get a car recall or if you have an accident or you get a drug issue, um, like, do they buy insurance policies for it? What do they do on the back end to say, you know, how do we mitigate our risk in case something bad occurs? So it, it, the dotted line actually goes straight across because... You know, when you talk about a private sector company or for-profit company, they're thinking about profitability. That's, that's their essence. That's their existence. And so they have to constantly balance the safety of their devices with the risks and corresponding you know, losses. And losses for a preventable death or injury are related to lawsuits, regulatory fines, and damage to the brand. So what happens is, let's say you're a car company. You, you will find them doing calculations. Uh, there's a famous Ford Pinto case. So back in the early 70s, Ford made a business case argument to the regulators that the cost of them making their cars safer would vastly exceed the value of the human life saved. And they literally inserted numbers for what is the value of saving a person from dying or value of saving someone from major injury. Now, that calculation became infamous. Why? Because Mother Jones wrote a scathing article, brought it to the public attention. Here's the fact. The fact is these companies have to do these calculations. Why? Because they can't put in every single possible safety device that ever exists and stay in business. They'll be out of business. So they have to make a decision. Now, how does this play out practically in the courts? Well, most recently, a few years ago, in a Toyota acceleration case, Toyota mm. knew about an issue in their accelerators. Yeah. They must have thought through what was it going to cost to fix it versus what would they pay later in fines as well as lawsuits and damage to the brand. Mm. Well, whatever that calculation might have been internally, the reality is they ended up paying approximately $10 million per person who died. So that preventable death was less than 100 people but the cost was enormous. So if you're a car company, yeah. you now insert in your cost benefit calculation, $10 million per preventable death. And when that number is high, that means you're gonna invest a lot more in safety. So a theme that came up right at the very beginning of our talk comes right back, which is lives that are more valued are more protected. Mm -hmm. Lives that are less valued that are less protected. So if that number had come back and they only had to pay $10,000 or $50,000 per person, they wouldn't invest as much in safety. That's the important thing. And the message goes to every car company out there. They see that number and they know they need to put a high number in to reflect what is the real world of how much they will have to pay if they could have prevented the death and chose to not. Sure, sure. This is my last question. I'm gonna play your editor, if you don't mind. For the last three months, your editor is Dr. Friedman. Come on, tell us the ethical dilemma of whether it's worth risking more deaths to reopen the economy or not. So even though you don't have the answers, <laughs> what, are, what are your thoughts about this, this, this back and forth intellectual discussion that started in February and continues to go on uh, uh, regarding COVID-19? Um, yeah, you know, public first, health versus economic health. 
<laughs> well, you know, first, I, I keep thinking of Harry Truman, where he um, desperately searched for a one-handed economist. So you wouldn't have on this hand and this hand. Um, <laughs> here, here's, here's the facts that a lot of people are uncomfortable with. Uh, fact number one, our regulatory agencies balance public health and economics every single day. That's literally part of their job function. They're required to do cost-benefit analysis. That's, that's fact number one. Fact number two, the problems that they're used to are much better understood in terms of what is the risk involved and what are the ramifications, right? So what is the uncertainties? So they understand the science better. Fact number three, the implications, the preventable deaths in this case are orders of magnitude bigger than what regulatory agencies are used to. So what that means is we have a framework and that framework isn't really going to handle this situation. So we're going to have to approach it in a way that really does, hopefully, think about that idea of all lives are valued equally. But at the same time, let's look at the countries that have done well, that have gone down this road and have succeeded. Because there are many countries who have controlled this, who have not had to destroy their economy, who are opening up in a safe way. And so I'm a big believer in let's learn from other areas where we can. And in this particular case, there's a number of countries who are further along, not only vastly more successful in controlling the virus and, and mitigating preventable mortality, but also in managing the economic impact. So let's look for that. Let's not try to create something assuming that we're the only country in the world struggling with it. We have the advantage of learning from others. So that's really my approach on that. Great answer. Great answer. No. Yeah, and really appreciate that. I mean, there's so much to learn. It's, it's something new. Uh, we really hadn't let the scientific method uh, in terms of the process get in there. But uh, given the current environment, it's very hard to do that. We're here with Howard Stephen Friedman, data scientist, health economist, and author of Ultimate Price Columbia. Uh, he's at the uh, you know, Columbia School. And more importantly, you can follow him at Twitter at H-O-A-R-D-S-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N and get his book, uh, ultimate price value placed on life uh, it's a very very important book to read especially given what we're going through now and of course going towards the future so thanks a lot for being on the show thank, thank you, so you. Much. it was a pleasure take care thanks sir what an amazing way to articulate complex topics and, and critical thinking and uh, we're going to follow up with another amazing uh, guest on disrupt tv it's our pleasure to introduce judy co chief product officer at stream sets Judy is the enterprise software veteran and an expert in data integration and management. Currently, Judy is the chief product officer at Streamset, uh, provider of industry's first data ops platform for modern data integration. As Streamset CPO, Judy is responsible for setting the product strategy, managing the full product lifecycle and product portfolio, improving the user experience, which is critically important, and driving alignment across all businesses. Previously, Judy was at Informatica, where she held a variety of senior leadership roles, including product management, product marketing, demand generation, and corporate marketing. You can follow Judy's company and the work that they're doing at StreamSets, S-T-R-E-A-M-S-E-T-S. -E Welcome, Judy, to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. It's been a long time. We haven't talked in a while, but more importantly, been you've, been, you've been immersed <laughs> in the data space forever, right? You know it, you understand it. It's the inside. And we get these interesting phrases all the time. Data is the new oil. Data is the new bacon. Uh, you know, you can't do data without digital, right? You know, I, I even say that. But but the point being is like, you know, what what are people talking about? Like, what is this data that everyone's trying to get at? And, and why is it so important today and even more important? in the future? I think data is now we don't want to compare it to oil because it turns out a lot of us can live without a certain amount of oil because we're not driving <laughs> anymore. Um, I think it's almost become water and air at this point, mm. um, particularly for a lot of organizations, whether that is companies or government organizations. Um, the ethos of, of our company is handling data when things are changing all the time. It's one thing to, to manage data in kind of a traditional environment where you, know, you have some databases and you have some apps and you kind of run things as business as usual and things change you know, once every few months and you handle things uh, through a change management process. What 
the ethos of what we do, it has become crystal clear um, as I've been talking to our customers over the last few months. There is so much changing in the environment, hmm. uh, the public health environment, the regulatory, are people allowed to go outside for a walk with or without a mask? What's it doing to my supply chain? Um, what's it doing to uh, my employee base? Um, what's it doing from a macroeconomic environment? Um, we're talking with customers who used to get by with looking at kind of trends on a monthly basis, you know, just checking where things were at. They're checking on a daily basis now because as we all know, we're, everything is changing weekly, if not daily. Um, so the only way to weave your way through that is through the data and, and understanding what's going on. I mean, part of it is yeah, reading things, you know, the latest news report, but part of it is looking at the trends of what's happening in your organization, your supply chain and your business um, and being able to react to that. Um, so I think to know what to do next, data has become more critical than oil. We can live without oil, we can't live without data right now. No, it, it, it makes, uh, and I love the analogy to water. Um, we're going to have Crawford Del Pret, who's the president of IDC, on our show in the upcoming weeks. And he talked to us about in the past, he said data is not like oil. Data is like water. It's essential for life and it needs to be clean and accessible. And I thought that uh, that was a great way of uh, really uh, a great analogy in terms of importance of data. Now, you talked about speed and relevance as important currencies where people are trying to make decisions. Organizations are trying to make decisions in almost real time. It's no longer quarterly business review to the board or monthly reports or even weekly summaries. They're in the moment. It's that minute, that hour, certainly that day. So do you expect, do you suspect that the companies and the CXOs that you're talking to will continue that uh, desire to have a near real time analysis and decision making or will it revert back to 2019 pre-COVID where there wasn't that same sense of urgency in terms of capture data, analyze data, make decision and act? I think this is going to be one of those changes that is relatively permanent. Um, mm. I think once people see, so right now it's a crisis management mode, right? So people are reaching out, they're trying to get data, tap into data they've never had before. And sometimes it is literally crisis management, you know, their supply chain's breaking down or people are getting sick and they need to figure out what's going on. And so they're having to tap data from things that they've never looked at before and having to pull it together overnight. In other cases, there's actually opportunities for growth for the companies that are scaling um, equally. I think as they are changing, not just, you know, their technical approach, but it's a mindset approach. Like, okay, we can't, we're not going through a three week governance process. We're pulling this stuff together overnight, deal with it. Uh, once they see the benefits of that in terms of their organi organizational agility and resilience, um, I think it's gonna be very hard to go back to the old ways. Um, and I think this is actually accelerating this shift to what we call a data ops mindset. So, you know, it's a term we use a lot, um, we didn't coin it, um, but this, this opera operationalization of data so that you can really turn on a dime and turn on a dime knowing that a lot of there's a lot of dynamism in the environment. Um, once people make that shift, they're not, they're not gonna go back. Um, and I think so, even when we're out of crisis management, then it'll be about how to pursue new growth opportunities, how to get new products out to market faster, how to understand really deeply in real time kind of customer and market demand trends. So that'll be in the future. Right now, crisis management, and we're probably gonna be in that for a while. So the data ops term, right? That's kind of like a play on, you know, sec ops, dev, dev ops, you know, data, like agile DevSecOps, agile DevSecs, <laughs> AI ops. Right? There's all this that go on, right? Yeah, you see that. Yes. But, and ML ops, <laughs> yes. right? But but it's really it's really talking about agility, right? The ability to yes. get to that agility, move quickly, be able to move that data around as you need to. Um, there's another term that you guys use a lot, and you've been talking about as well, is data drift. Right, and let's talk a little bit about data drift, why it's important, why people are worried about it, so. Yeah, so drift is really all of those unexpected, often undocumented, unannounced uh, changes to data um, that are now pervasive in how we live our lives. 
again, 20 years ago, and I started my career in data a couple decades ago, you had companies, they had their big systems, they had their big ERP system, their big CRM system, you know, a couple mainframes and some big honking databases, and they would things would change once every three or six months. Now, a lot of the data, whether it's because it's um, moved into cloud applications, or just because, you know, there's lots of out, uh, data out uh, in the broader ecosystem that you're trying to pull in, a lot of the data is no longer owned by any single organization. It's really become a web, right? And once it's outside of the control of that central organization, it's become chaotic. And if you are pretending that you can control that and respond to that in sort of a change management fashion, you're, you're dead in the water. Yeah, you can't make it happen. So, Drift is happening, okay. it's a reality. And so if you don't change, it's not just a, you know, tools and technology architecture, it's a mindset change. So if you're fighting Drift, you're fighting change, actually Drift, it makes it sound bad, but it's not. Drift is a sign that there's innovation, that right. things are changing and keeping pace with things. But to, you know, the traditional mindset's like, oh my God, it's chaos and I gotta control it. Right. And so it's like, you know, you gotta do a jujitsu move and kind of roll <laughs> with the changes, right? Yeah, it'd be like go a friction, it. it's a force. Yeah, yeah. Like, exactly. it's, it's like what Bruce Lee said, you gotta be like water, you gotta be able to flow in and out. <laughs> exactly, you're not the brick wall trying to stop the change and stop the drift, That that's right. a dead end. Right, right, but you know, so, so, so here's the challenge that, you know, I talk to CMOs and our research for my company shows that an average marketing team, a high performing market, marketing team, they have 12 different data sources, 12 different data sources. Uh, as much as they want to have fluidity and control, on average, they have eight uh, data management, uh, what do I want to call it, tools. You know, they have a CRM, they have a, a data management platform, DMP, they have a customer data platform, CDP, they have a consent management platform, they have a email service platform, advertising platform, social media and email. and so. So uh, multiple data sources, multiple tools to manage. So they're trying to have some control, yet they want to embrace collaboration and fluidity. So what type of culture do you need in order to be able to balance the need for flow and continuity, but at the same time, the precision, knowing that marketing needs to operate like a surge, like surgeons in terms of really target to segment of one and deliver the right content on the right channel at the right time to the right person. So I think there are a couple of core principles. So we really, part of this mindset shift is getting away from a old fashioned, very centralized command and control approach. Um, really to enable this. And again, this is why it's actually really a mindset shift. It's not just like, oh, I'm gonna use a different platform or new tool. You have to enable self-service. You have to enable the people who are closest to the business, the people who understand the needs to be able to get the data, to be able to analyze it, figure out what it means for them as quickly as possible. And so that's scary for a lot of people who, have, who, who, who oh, well, they're gonna hurt themselves, they're gonna break something. So that's a big part of the mindset shift. And, and so you have to, so that gets you the speed and the agility. So then the other half of the equation is resiliency. Well if they do hurt themselves, you don't want them to take the company down. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So it then it moves to, then there's a layer of, instead of kind of a governance process and this very heavyweight onerous thing where you like, there's a million checklists that you have to mm. fill out before you can get to do anything. There's pervasive policies that can be implemented in real time so that you can still put, the, the guide rails up around, you know, say security or access, um, you know, resiliency, so that you can let those people closest to the need, closest to the business understanding, do what they need to do. There's sort of real time policy enforcement, so they don't hurt themselves, they don't hurt the organization, instead of kind of having these manual processes to control all that. So I think there are some kind of um, architectural underpinnings that enable this sort of organizational mindset shift. And if you can get there, then you can be that water flowing around. Hmm. Makes right? sense. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. No, 
this is one of the most interesting things, right? I mean, we went from physical types of data integration to now we're thinking about how do we stream information and insights and make order out of chaos, right? And so now, now people have an opportunity to go back and think what's in their post-pandemic playbook, right? This is like the number one thing. It's like, how do we tie all this stuff together? Well, we were working on a project and you killed it. <laughs> so now it's like, you know, what, what do people have to do differently this time? Because every time people jump in here, they're like, yeah, we're going to do it a little bit differently and then everything peters off like what can they do differently about this because you know we know the connectivity of that data and why it's such an important fabric in terms of making things happen powering decisions uh, what should they do differently and can I, can I just follow up on that because it was ray who told me one time when you visualize data then anyone can take better smarter action so is part of doing things differently to not just stream data but do it in a visual, in a beautiful, and I know you're responsible for user experience, in a way that's intuitive, that allows us to naturally figure out what's the next best thing we need to do in order to position ourselves in a more secure, healthy way. Yeah, absolutely. I think once people get a taste of what they can do with this data, all those people out at the edges of the organization, the business, even out into you know the customer and partner ecosystem of a, of a company, then once they have that, and again, maybe it's being delivered in crisis mode right now, hmm. they're not going to give that up, right? You give, <laughs> you can't take the candy away once you've, you've given it to someone. Right. Um, so, you know, for example, one of um, the situations we're dealing with is uh, the state of Ohio is using our software, and they were using it beforehand um, to link together you know, different agencies that were providing different social services. So linking together unemployment data with um, you know, the SNAP, the food program, um, education and trying to link all that. And you know, that was done got state government. It, they did that at a certain pace. Um, when COVID hit and they needed to put together a COVID tracking dashboard, both from a public health and epidemiology standpoint, but also to track the economic recovery, they used that same um, the same team who knew how to do it and the same architecture, and they were able to pull together their COVID dashboard overnight. And that's what the governor reports on his 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 week his daily press conference. And you know ah. that's you know that uh -huh. data is now there's it's visualized you know through through um, visualization tool and we're it's real time data. It's coming from you know hundreds of different sources that the, the week before they had never touched, right? And now that the public there expects to see that kind of thing, they're going to want to see it for other yeah. things related to how the state is being run, right? So again, once that you know, the, the media are expecting that, the citizens of the state are expecting that, they're not going to go back the old way. I don't think. Absolutely, absolutely, you're That's right. A great point. Yeah, Governor DeWine was uh, pretty early doing that. And now other organizations like CEOs, I mean, they've always wanted to have that digital boardroom, digital dashboard with them. And you're definitely right. I mean, we're hearing from a lot of clients that in the past, they might have looked at these metrics once a week at a senior leadership meeting. Now they start every day with those dashboards. So something big is happening. So, yeah, it's the overnight awesome. digital transformation, right? So again, it, it was a crisis that precipitated, but a lot of organizations just literally overnight and once once right. once you make that transformation you're not going to go back Angry. so yeah so we're seeing the shift this is happening uh we're now getting it's this happening. place where everybody's going in they're data driven is hot and that's where people are moving uh let's talk a little bit about uh, something you want to talk about which is really how do we create emotional space personally in a crisis because we've all been working really hard it's been like eight weeks you know it feels like eight months i don't know what it is like you know some people haven't even walked out of their homes like out here in the bay area we're a little bit more serious about these things you know and <laughs> sometimes like other people just you know they're, they're craving something but you know everything that they know their patterns have completely been disrupted um and, and so what have you guys been doing yeah, I mean, we're lucky, at least from our company standpoint, in that since we're, we deal with software, we can work remotely. We don't have any physical goods that we deal with, so everyone can work from home and be safe. So that was a fairly easy shift for us from a kind of day-to-day -day works perspective. But, um, you know, still, this is really affecting people deeply. Um, it's affecting my family very deeply. I have two elementary school age kids, and um, you know they have they're having very different reactions to this, um, and hmm. it's it's tough. Um, so I think a lot of it is just 
you know, giving people emotional space and just doing more check-ins, you know, even though we're on Zoom, you know, I start every conversation, how are you doing? And I mean that sincerely, that's not a, you know, gratuitous salutation. I actually like, how are you doing today? Because for some people, it's day to day. Some they have good days and they have bad days. Whereas before, I wouldn't have mess, not necessarily felt the need to do that. And I think you know, there's a bit of giving people space, but at the same time, you know, galvanizing folks around a cause. And so for us, one of the things that is galvanizing us is supporting our customers through this. Hmm. And you know, that's the thing that we can rise to as an organization. Um, supporting each other and supporting our customers. And so then there's there's some purpose when, you know, I think people sitting at home, it's like, it, it's truly Groundhog Day. Yeah. You know, I'm wearing the same yoga yeah. pants every day. <laughs> <laughs> and, no, and people definitely want to help and people want to help. You know, great comments here uh, from, from Matthew Halliday. You probably know him. Uh, so it's asking how you feel. Definitely a good point on your end. We are here with Judy Co, Chief Product Officer at StreamSets. And you can follow the Twitter handle at StreamSets. Judy's been shy on Twitter, so we haven't seen her on there. I know, I know. <laughs> I knew you were going to give me trouble for that. <laughs> not at all. No, you're probably in less trouble than I am by not being on Twitter. So yeah. I'll give you that. hey, thanks for being on the show. We'll see you soon. We'll get you to a barbecue once those things occur again. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot. So have a great weekend. Thank you so much. Terrific. You were terrific. Uh, you know, it's, it is important for us to empathetically listen and understand that we're all struggling. We're, we're all struggling. Some more than others, for sure. But at the end of the day, uh, it's really important to, uh, for us to recognize that. So, so uh, my, Ray's first question with, for Jack is going to be, how are you doing? And it's our pleasure to feeling? have Jack Vaughn, writer, <laughs> <laughs> writer, analyst, researcher at Progressive Gate joining us. Uh, much of Jack's focus uh, of late has been on Internet of Things, 5G, AI, and he's been covering a series of stories for IoT World Today. He's also a great participant with Constellation Research as an editor and judge for Supernova Awards. So his expertise helps us identify the best and brightest change agents. His main interest uh, in, uh, is in uh, assessing trends by analyzing technologies deployed, vendor segmentation, and relevant use cases. We're, we're always looking for great use cases on our show so we can inspire and educate our audience. You can follow Jack on Twitter at Jack L. Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-A-N. Welcome, Jack. Uh, Jack, to the Shrub TV. It's Jack, Jack I, I Vaughn. I, I I'm sorry. I Vaughn, my, my apologies. How are you That's doing? How are you feeling? Uh, how am yeah, I doing? How are you doing? dollars in Confederate money. That's how I feel. But yeah, everything's going <laughs> good. You know. Well, this is good. You know, hey, look, you know, reason we wanted to get you on the show is because you've been following IoT for a while. And as one of those big disruptive forces, you know, this has been one that's taking a little bit longer than normal. At least it's not like cloud. Cloud's been around for 20 years and we only have 20% adoption, which is kind of hilarious, right? That one's a real slow one. We're like, come on, what's going on here? But IoT's had so many, many interesting, you know, changes, uh, shifts, business models. So when we think about IoT today, what do you think is different, like, um, versus some of the other transformations that we've seen in the past? Okay, well, Ray, I'd like to, uh, by the way, I should say that the Supernova Awards are June 26th, they're due, due for the, uh, the entries. So, Let's, let's not <laughs> I'm in. In. We are. We are looking for Supernova Award entries. This is amazing. So, But uh, I'm looking forward to that. It's, it's an interesting view on, on what people are doing. I mean, I, I actually, IoT, I've been covering for uh, like the last year, not quite that long. And um, it's like a lot of things. I like talk. I, I covered Hadoop. Uh, I've covered embedded systems design. Um, middleware, and about six years ago, I ended up with Hadoop and data. So each of these things has been like a Rip Van Winkle experience for me because <laughs> like with Hadoop, they were doing columnar databases, and that's what they'd been doing X years before when I stopped covering data warehousing and Sybase IQ and so forth. And uh, so so you, you, you meet things new again. And, and my take on IoT World or IoT, and I, which I've been writing about for IoT World today quite a bit, um, is that uh, it, it, yeah, first of all, IoT is happening because there's a lot of devices out there and they're a lot cheaper than they used to be. They can be become much more proliferate. And, um, but at the same time, the data coming in is the same issue uh, as ever. And, you know, we, 
Ms. Cole just discussed it. We, uh, uh, you're going to find that too. And the data coming in from, from IoT devices is analog, strange. And, you know, what I found covering Hadoop, and I, and I left the Hadoop B just as it was kind of leaving the building as a, as a major topic, is that, you know, there's hard to build prototypes. That you, it's, it's nice if you can get help from a vendor. This is somewhat I see with, uh, for instance, uh, Google buys of Looker and Salesforce's uh, buy of Tableau, that they're, they're trying to see what can be packaged up because it's, it's too hard for people to build a lot of this stuff and succeed. So that was true with Hadoop. And it's true with IoT uh, too. The, the the information comes in. What do you do with it? So we're still at a point where the technology and the complexity of just getting your arms around that technology um, still needs some simplification. Um, it still requires people who kind of are more developers than regular individuals into the space. Yeah, and it's it's radio frequency developers, uh, and it's 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 not just sort of developers, it's embedded systems uh, development. There's been business models that are emerging. And I mean, I, the way I look at, at IoT is that it's more like industry 4.0. So if you are really going to digitally transform your, uh, your operations, um, that's what IoT has set out for itself to, to have to do. And uh, basically, it is like the cloud, that there's a lot of devices that uh, are now uh, connected, the world. It's there's large distributed computing and connections, uh, but uh, to, to actually make business models of them is a little more difficult. Amazon's been a, a real force in a way with that uh, one day delivery, that last mile uh, issues, and uh, so now people can can use uh, contract. Of course, with the web, one of the big first killer apps was the FedEx tracking app. And uh, now I'll, FedEx is happy if, if you like to, to be your logistics uh, service, not just a, a package service. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of people say, well, I'd like to put uh, sensor devices on my materials that are in transit. So I, I know where they are. I don't have to call somebody or, or, or use uh, the internet to, to find out where it is. So this is a place where supply chain, last mile uh, tracking, these are things where IoT was uh, definitely making progress and, and yet to, to capitalize on it again, when you bring the material in, there's uh, some organizational things that have to happen. So it sounds like a lot of things are happening, right? We're all, you talked about radio frequency engineers that are needed here. And, you know, that means like there's some convergence of 5G, right? There's a lot of data coming into play, right? And that means like we need IoT, right? Uh, there are other folks that are popping in, right? That are important, right? Uh, you know, understanding the big data, understanding the AI that's required. They're all playing a role. Um, what's important? Like, how do we, I mean, are, are these converging? Are these similar skill sets that people have to worry about? Well, it's it, of course we're looking at teams, building teams that can can work across this. Uh, a, a different, besides data ops, there's some discussion of uh, uh, you know really uh, operations like factory floors and so forth to be more more connected with with the IT department. And uh, again, uh, a lot of these um, projects, the prototypes, they're not necessarily getting off the board but um uh you know i i i'd say in changes again it boils down to a lot of things you know over time you have to scope your scope your uh, problems carefully and uh it looks like we're coming into a period where where practicality is is going to be uh maybe ahead of the the buzz for a while and that that the uh, iot projects may be uh narrowed down to the, uh, the low-hanging fruit. Hmm. Wow. Well, you know, a lesson from 2020 is, you know, every business needs to be a digital business. And it's going to be a definitive year, in my opinion, for technologies like e-commerce, telemedicine, remote work, obviously, with video streaming, uh, you know, distance learning, remote learning. 
So what, what is your point of view in terms of the pandemic and its impact on adoption of IoT? And, uh, you know, before you answer that, we had ARK Invest on the show and this institutional investor and they looked at Tesla technology and said this car with the hundreds of sensors and the ability to innovate in terms of autonomous level zero to five um, is, is three, four years ahead of any other car manufacturer in the world. So a lot of this combination of machine learning and, and IoT and uh, 5G and edge computing is going to place, in addition to the battery technology and the, you know, the, the, the AI processors that they're building in-house, is positioning this company to be the first trillion dollar market cap auto manufacturer. So incredible amount of technology driving the value for Tesla. What has the pandemic done in terms of accelerating IoT adoption? not just in terms of new business model innovation, but capabilities that are now necessity in this contactless distributed digital world that we're a part of. Yeah, well, you know, I have to say it's early, but you've, you've seen Zoom and you've seen uh, telehealth. Uh, it does seem like um, AR or artificial reality, which has a lot of, con and in the form of digital twins, these are all things that IoT has been been a part of, you know, I, IoT components have enabled uh, this to, to, to begin to happen. And, um, you know, a, a striking thing, one of the stories I worked with, I, I, I talked with the SAS Institute uh, system architect and uh, Michael Thomas, he had, he had told me, he had said last fall, he had done a demo on uh, how you would clean uh, medical rooms, because, which was all of a sudden a, a topic when I when I talked to him in March, um, how, how you could use artificial artificial uh, reality to you know find the spots where they should focus people that are uh, tasked to, to clean to do that. So, I, we, you know, we we see a supply chain sort of reconfiguring, and I should mention that the parts, the components in in these systems. Uh, we'll see how it goes in terms of uh, uh, if there's a slowdown in that. If there's a slowdown in the 5G rollout, um, if if uh, consumers at what rate they buy the 5G phones, which include 5G cameras, so um, it's um, there'll be more automation. And uh, that, of course, I'm I'm taking that from from Holger Mueller of of Constellation. He, he, <laughs> Yes, the, autom the automation imperative only gets stronger. I don't just edit these yeah. things; I read them too. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll see how the supply chain uh, reconfigures, or if it does. Right now, we're expected not to have maybe uh, the same type of globalism that uh, companies may have become familiar with. And yet, the sun may come out, and things may <laughs> roll as they do. We're all hoping yeah. for that. We're all hoping for that. Yeah, no, we're definitely saying for that. Hey, now, you know, we're, you know, this shift, right, that's happening that we're talking not just on IoT and on the convergence of 5G and what happens, right? I mean, what, you know, what the SaaS system engineer that you're talking about, I mean, he's been spending a lot of time on augmented reality and really talking about streaming analytics, really trying to make data immersive. Um, we're starting to see that as well in, in other areas. Uh, but but for you, like, where do you think the biggest use case for IoT will, will pick up? Is it something that's going to be post-COVID related where things are contactless, right? You just never punch into someone. Or is it going to be an automation like you were saying earlier? Or, or do you think it's it's even much simpler than that? Well, I, I, again, like one way of looking at IoT is as Industry 4.0. These systems, once they get in there, they're in for many years. And they still face the same issues that there's just a variety of standards, a, a wide variety of data types. And I like what you said about cloud. It's, you know, as a reporter, we got tired of writing about cloud after maybe five or six years. And... Um, but it, it's true that when you get down to nitty gritty, it, 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 it takes time. Things change name, names along the way, like application service providers become cloud providers. And, uh, but it, it never, never happens at, uh, at, at the rate you think, or especially what a reporter might uh, think. 
This is one. This is wonderful. Hey, we are here with Jack Vaughn, writer, analyst, and researcher at Progressive Gauge uh, LLC. And you can follow him at Jack, I-V-A-U-G-H-A-N. Jack's been helping us a lot uh, as one of our editors. I judge for our Supernova Awards. Get your Supernova Awards submissions in, as he's asked us to do. Uh, and more importantly, sharing on IoT. So check out some of his writings. Follow his Twitter feed. And uh, thank you for being on the show, Jack. Thank you so much. Best days. Thank you. So what was the deadline, Ray? June 26th? I don't know. I, I don't remember the deadline for... Uh... I will Aubrey. <laughs> I think she knows. I think it is June 26th. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty close. <laughs> so You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's incredible to have three, you know, experts, uh, economists, uh, health economists, data scientists, um, you know, uh, folks that have been covering technology, emerging technologies, talk about how important it is for uh, companies, individuals, organizations to be data-driven. To, you know, to, to have that scientific approach and make decisions not based on emotions, not based on assumptions, but truly operate like surgeons where they leverage data to get to the grounded truth. And I think that's critically important for business, uh, especially in this post-pandemic world. Your, your thoughts on our three guests? Yeah, no, I think uh, we're starting to understand the impact of data, uh, what data actually has a uh, impact on human life. Data has an impact on our business and our environment. Data is impacting what's happening on the world of IoT. And what we really have to do is think about well, the upstream and downstream uses of data, protecting that, ensuring it's private, making sure people uh, feel safe and comfortable around it, and that data can be used for good. I mean, there's elements of that that we're seeing in the world of contact tracing, what's happening from uh, epidemiological perspective. So the challenge really is like, you know, how do we you know, make that an asset, protect that asset, uh, help mm -hmm. organizations, you know, figure out when to share that asset as well. And, mm -hmm. and I think we're starting to come to grasp with it. You know, this is something people didn't value before. You see this in mergers and acquisitions today in, in the post-merger integration and the, you know, even in the due diligence, they're trying to understand what the data strategy might be, how that data plays a role. So, so it's definitely there. And it's been great to have these three guests on. So, absolutely. But, hey, it's 192. What's up for 193? <laughs> Who do we have next? I think we got some special, it's going to be a special episode, I believe. I think so. I think so. You know, so we've interviewed 579 guests so far. And uh, without, I, this is not disrespect to any of the 579 guests, but my favorite guest is coming back on the show. It's our pleasure to have Tom Peters, author of In Search of Excellence and 18 other books that have sold over 10 million. I just want to let, first of all, I want to thank the Disrupt uh, TV community. Uh, in, the month of, in the month of May, we're averaging close to 50,000 views of our show. We had 62,000 views of our show last week, 55,000 views the week before, an excellent episode this week. But when Tom Peters came on our show, we broke 100,000 views. So, so he is by far the most popular guest we've had on our show, and he's uh, gracious enough to come back. And we have a lot to talk about with Tom. And so many topical things that and, and, and he's and and we he's buttressed to, by another guest that's amazing as well yeah so, exactly michael sikorsky i mean michael, this is crazy he is one of the most successful ceos uh, uh and entrepreneurs uh you know one of the fastest growing startups in the u.s uh, and co-founder of robots and pencils ernst ernst young named him the top entrepreneur in canada uh he's extraordinary so because of tom and Michael, we've decided to just have two guests next week. We, we typically have three, but, uh, you know, Tom is a legend and Michael is on his way of becoming one. <laughs> so, so we're going to have only two guests. We hope you join us. And we great. have a special guest June 16th, uh, him and his other half. Yes. I, his better half. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, I don't know if you want to have the breaking news, but you know, I'll let you uh, decide the move. All right, we'll say it. We'll say it. I'm getting notes from our producer. She's like, say it. Okay. All right, you want to make the announcement? Yeah, so, go for it. Go for it. So we have the former prime minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull. And uh, his wife, the former mayor of Sydney, uh, on a back-to-back -back special edition episode. And it will be airing, I believe, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific, and 9 a.m. Australia time. And it's uh, going to be June 16 for those on North America time and June 17, 9 a.m. Australia Eastern Standard Time. So it's uh, yeah, a special 
45-minute edition. And um, we're probably going to do another one of those with another guest we'll announce next week. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another uh, name that you surely recognize. Ray's going to have all – well, you know, the thing is you can go to our uh, the Disrupt TV website and see all the guests. So, but we have extraordinary guests for June. Uh, so uh, it's, it's – again, we want to thank the community because the numbers in terms of viewership, engagement on social – is uh, is uh, is the highest ever, and so you're tuning in and you're inspiring us. You're suggesting guests, which we love. So continue. If there's a best-selling author, if the, I'm not going to put a caveat. If there's someone who we believe can educate and inspire our audience, suggest, and we'll do yeah. our best to bring them on. Uh, your final remarks, Ray. Oh, hey, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we're, we're getting there. Uh, stay safe, and uh, more importantly, stay inspired. Uh, there's a lot going on in the world today, and uh, hopefully we can find some inspiration in each other. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Hey, everyone. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. See you next Friday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, and we're going to move on to our green room. So thanks a lot for listening.